Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back. It is part two of whatever we had going on last time, Cody. If you missed it, here's the idea. I would say after pouring through all the evidence in NBA history, it is difficult to take a viewpoint that, you know, one player is clearly better than any other player to ever play at their peak, and therefore you can't really make a reasonable case for a second or a third or a fourth player. Now, a lot of people had a reaction to that. I I would say more people who maybe are 30, 35 and older grew up seeing Michael Jordan play, um, sort of got to live through the aura of that era. And as someone who, you know, I grew up with that, I didn't miss a Bulls game for years once they created this thing called League Pass. Um, I get that. I get that. I get that one because as a reminder, if I was forced to choose, I think it's most likely he had the best peak in NBA history. But also the marketing and kind of like the way the game felt in the 90s around him as a singular brand, maybe being the first athlete to achieve that level of like billion dollar international brand fame that completely transcended the sport and made him a household name uh, in Asia and Africa and every nook and cranny of the globe. Like, I get that combined with the fact that he played on a team that kept winning and he made the plays at the end of the season to generate those wins. And it sort of created this aura of invincibility. But, but the issue becomes... Um, and I was trying to make this point last time, and I fear it was lost. If he's on a team that isn't as good, we don't ever get to see those moments. And so immediately it becomes harder to create this idea that there is one single unstoppable force that no one's challenged. And if you look at things like, we'll come back to this now, like the scoreboard. How much does a player influence the scoreboard when they go in and out of the game? There are reasons why those stats aren't perfect that we've talked about a number of times on this show. But Cody, like, like that is everything, man. That is basketball. That's what we're... When we talk about on-court impact and we're not talking about off-court influence and things like that, that's what we mean. And when we look at the history of that data that we have and we don't see anything that says, like, one player is plus 27 points per 100 constantly, and everyone else is plus 15, it makes me wonder, hmm, are these guys at the top more closely together than we kind of think about as a community? And that's not to say we can't come up with a reductionist way to say, I I trust this guy more because of the clutch. I, I trust this guy more because of his jumper or his, you know, this or that. But that's sort of the idea here. And once you do that, you realize, well, as I, as I got to in Greatest Peaks, boy, a lot of these players are hard to different, differentiate when you look at them at their best. I really like all of what you just said, especially about the scoreboard, because there's a couple of parts of that that makes this just, to me, almost so impossible, which is why we have so much of a, especially so much of a prelude last episode, where almost we actually could have recorded its own prelude episode, like an hour and a half of us just building up to this point. But when you talk about the scoreboard, you look at a player and you're like, all right, how much is your offense actually contributing to the scoreboard? How much is of your defense is contributing to the scoreboard? How much is the interaction between your offense and your defense contributing to the scoreboard? And when you start trying to break it down like that, 
I think it becomes really difficult to try and figure out because I know you have some ideas that's like, here's the general high end for what an offensive player can achieve. Here's yep. the general high end a defensive player can achieve. But like, are you sure, Ben? Are you mm. sure you're not off by like a certain amount? And if defense is more important, then great. Kevin Garnett's a very good GOAT candidate, right? And if offense is actually more important, then great. St- uh, Stephen Curry is a great candidate as well. And, you know, I think that's the thing that always gets me stuck when I try and think about this is like, I just trying to uh, figure out the levers of like how much offense matters, how much defense matters. That's the part of it that always gets me stuck on it. Well, I, w- I will say the nice thing about that that doesn't make me too uneasy is that we still get an overall signal. And I think actually sometimes it can be a trap to say, let me try to let me try to split out the defensive signal. Let me if I, if I go to my dunks and threes, if I want to try to pull up some advanced metrics and I go to play by play stats.com and I'm like, Man, what happens in the three years that, you know, Kobe and Shaq play together and when one's off the court and one's on the court, the overall signal to me is still going to be the most important starting point. It doesn't mean I don't look at offense and defense. I do. But sometimes you can cheat offense a little or you can cheat defense a little or you'll see things like um, in Phoenix, for instance, there's a period where Steve Nash was playing with more defensively oriented players when he was on the court with like the bench units and then they would take him out and then they would replace him with like Boris Diaw, Leandro Barbosa, Eddie House, James Jones. They would be like, all right, we don't have Nash. So now we need to make sure we load up on playmaking and shot creation and things like that. And what this does is it all of a sudden makes Nash look like a really good defensive player uh, in the signal, but it's not. It's still the overall thing. So I definitely hear what you're saying, but at the end of the day, um, it's like if we're uncertain to your point, just a little bit that someone is worth one or two more wins on defense or offense, then it might throw everything out of whack. But the overall signals we're getting are not, well, this player is worth 47 wins and everyone else is worth 25 wins. It's more like, man, the difference between 17 and 23 wins or just making up a number off the top of my head. That's the difference between like a great player and an all-time player. And I think that's hard for uh, us to just sort of intuit, right? Yeah. And the context really matters. And this is kind of where we ended episode one here. I think we literally ended with a question that's like, um, I was like, okay, what if Michael Jordan didn't play with Scottie Pippen and not in the like, do they get wins sense, right? Because I think we both agree if Scottie Pippen doesn't play with them during the 90s and nothing else changes, probably don't have six championships. I don't want to talk about how many they might have. They don't have six. But like if Scottie Pippen isn't Michael Jordan's teammate, let's just look at Michael Jordan as a discrete entity for the Bulls on his own. Is he as good if Scottie Pippen isn't on the court next to him? And I think that interaction effect, the context of who else is around certain players, makes this even more difficult because you put someone in one context, somebody else in another context, and like all of a sudden this number that you're trying to pinpoint you almost need to like triangulate it. But the difficulty then is you can't, it's not like 2K. You can't just be like, all right, let's simulate the season 10,000 times without Pippen. Let's do it with Pippen. And then we'll figure out exactly where Michael Jordan is, right? So some of it like falls in the realm of philosophy where it's like, well, maybe from what we see from this player and other archetypes in this system, uh, we can see this kind of a signal from him. So uh, that's the other part of it, Ben, that I want to talk about a little bit more. Well, I'll go back and use Nash as an example because he's on my mind here um if you took him in 2005 and he didn't go from dallas to phoenix he went from uh dallas to i don't know another team with a lead guard maybe the lakers 
Maybe that's a better example. He went to the Lakers, and Kobe is there for the Lakers instead of Shaq. Do you get the same sort of offensive system where he's running a ton in pick and roll, he's trying to play at a lot of pace? It's unlikely. And so then what does that mean when you think about, A, the interaction effect of playing with shooters or the right big man, the right role partner in a pick-and-roll game, a pick-and-pop game, something like that. There are those interaction effects. But then there's also the environment on your team and the knowledge of the coach and the team around you for how to use your skills. Um, I don't have easy answers for some of these questions. I think this even applies to Michael Jordan. Like, What happens if Michael Jordan doesn't get the triangle with Phil Jackson. I, I think Michael Jordan was incredible before the triangle in 1989, 1988, 1988. But to me, Cody, there's certainly a harnessing power of an offense like that with his skill set, where you get some of his off ball game, you get some of his on ball game, you get back cuts, you get post up, you get high post offense, you get low post offense, you get him running pick and roll. There are built in triangle options for transitioning into a ball screen with him. So it's a it's a harnessing effect for a player that maybe at that time wasn't going to be as successful if he went around playing a more rogue style than compared to today. These are all the things that just make like splitting the fine hairs um, just so difficult. Because you know, at the end of the day, like you're saying, like you go back, you watch early Michael Jordan, right? The hang time is absolutely there. The first step, like early 80s, mid 80s, Michael Jordan first step, you just know it's there. You're like, okay, no one can stay in front of this guy. But then, of course, you don't really realize that he's going to add this deadly mid-range jumper that just becomes basically unstoppable when you pair it with his athleticism. So at the core, there like is a specific player. Like there is Michael Jordan, but like the Michael Jordan that we see interacting with everyone else doesn't really exist without the rest of that context. And, you know, not to just immediately bring him up uh right after Michael Jordan, but I think LeBron James... Oh, what are you doing? Especially... Well, LeBron yeah. James and Michael Jordan. <laughs> I, I might as well be on ESPN at this point. Like, if I'm going to go this early with these two, like, give me a show. I'll bring this conversation up every day. I'm going to take it in a different way, though, because I think LeBron's statistical signal is honestly one of the most unique of any player we've ever seen, okay? Because we've seen him in a couple of contexts throughout his life, and we don't, unfortunately, uh, have some of these stats for Michael Jordan. We have some on-off stuff. I think you have a nice video about tracking some of Michael Jordan's stats across a lot of games. But LeBron, we go back to Miami Heat days, right? And if you look at, and you know, unfortunately, we have to deal with sample sizes here. If you look at the four years that he's with the Miami Heat, mm -hmm. right, and you look at the playoff numbers, they're better in the playoffs, by net rating when Dwayne Wade is on the bench and LeBron James is on the court. They are better when LeBron is out without Wade than when they are both on together. And it's not like they're Titanic when they're together. They're like a plus four or something like that 100 per 100 possessions. But with LeBron, it's like a plus 10. Like it's a ridiculous number, right? Let's skip ahead to Cleveland for a little bit. Second stint Cleveland. He's with Kyrie Irving. He's with Kevin Love. When he's on the court with Kyrie Irving... The difference between that and when he's on the court without Kyrie Irving is minimal. It might as well be the same. There's basically no net rating change in the playoffs with those two. Okay? So now we have two situations where he's with another very good on-ball creator, and it's basically the same or better when he's on the court without them. However, now we jump ahead again 
to the Los Angeles Lakers when he's with Anthony Davis, somebody whose skill set actually fits really well in terms of Davis being like a much more dependent offensive player, a guy that fits really well with his def- uh, with him defensively. When they're both on the court alone, it's actually not that great. A lot of it has to do with LeBron's aging. When they're together, they're like a plus 10 net rating in the playoffs throughout their entire career there. So that's actually the best playoff case we've seen of LeBron being with the teammate. And so there's like multiple ways you can look at look at that. Number one, LeBron James, obviously an incredible quarterback, but when you put him next to other high-level creators on the perimeter, that interaction effect isn't great. That's really not a good signal that you want to see when two teammates are together. But when you see him with somebody like Anthony Davis, it balloons their impact when together. So, again, trying to triangulate all of that to pinpoint exactly what LeBron James, Ben, that's the puzzle that's just like twisting around in my head all the time. Yeah, I think it's also the fun part about basketball outside of sort of talking about these players. I mean, maybe Bill Walton is the example to circle back to in a second, Mm -hmm. but when you think about an interaction effect and what that means, this isn't linear. We're not just adding, you don't go, well, this guy's worth three points and this guy's worth three points, so they get to six points. So Rasheed Wallace gets traded to the Pistons in 2004. And this just sort of unlocks something. It, it, it creates something greater than the sum of the parts in Detroit, and they take off, and they have one of the best defenses ever, and they basically, I was going to say storm to the title, but just like any new team, the 08 Celtics, things like that, there were bumpy moments, but by the time they got to the end of the road, um, they they were the best team. They were fantastic. Dave DeBusher, to go way back in time, he was traded to the Knicks in, the I think, the 1969 season, Mid, another mid-season trade like Rasheed Wallace. And all of a sudden, you just change one ingredient in the system. You get a guy who maybe is a little bit more passing inclined, his spacing changes, his decision-making changes a little bit, and his defense is really good. And maybe that's what the team needs because in defense, to a certain degree, you're only as good as your weakest link. It, it's a team unit that you don't have to share the ball. You're working together to create a shield to stop the other team. So... All these things, the San Antonio Spurs, the 2014 beautiful game, San Antonio Spurs, you know, would you go and say, well, if I just take Patty Mills and put him on this team and Danny Green and put him on that team and Tiago Splitter, put him over there, they'll all be really good. It's like, no, there's something going on about the way the skill sets fit. So um, let's go to Walton. Okay. He is a player who we don't have plus minus data for, um, I just outlined a ton of ways that the box score once again fails us, especially with defense, with spacing, with passing, um, the quickness of his decision-making, the feel, the offensive rebounding, although in his case we do have offensive rebounds, the screen setting and where you put your body and how you start transition with your outlet passes. I mean, those things in like early offense, like pace, hit-ahead passes, outlet passes, they almost have no register in the box score. Um, maybe outside of like a defensive rebound or something. But, you know, you kick it up and then the, another guy gets a two-on-one and makes a pass. He gets the assist. You don't get the assist, but you generated it by spotting something that maybe 90% of other players wouldn't spot. The total sum of that for Portland, Cody, was when Walton was on the court in a time of pretty great parity in the NBA in the late 70s, when he was on the court, they played at an absolutely ridiculous 64-win pace in 97 games. 
Uh, that's controlling for his teammates, as we always try to do with those kind of stats. And then without him, they played at a 36-win pace. So that is pretty much as big or as monstrous of a signal as you're going to get in that kind of category without getting additional seasons. You know, it's early only two seasons that we're talking about, 1977, when they win the championship, and 1978, when he isn't able to finish the season and misses the playoffs. But other outside of getting like another 10, 20, 30 games of a really tight sample, basically have the same team for those two years. And you are basically looking at... Um, you know, the championship level team, maybe an all-time level team compared to what the the environment was in the late 1970s, and a team that might miss the playoffs. And uh, yeah, does that make you a GOAT candidate? Does that give you a good argument for, you know, being in this group that we're talking about in these last two episodes? Or is that just conditional impact? Is that situational impact where you say, the interaction of Walton's skills is perfect for this team. And when he goes away, they don't really have any way to sustain or distribute his defensive impact. And they even lose something on offense because of all the other skills that we talked about that extend beyond just like points and assists and shooting percentage. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I almost think, Ben, that we're going to need to come up with a new term here in a second. Because we, we've been saying interaction effect a few times, and you and I, I think, so far are using it. We're talking about like when teammates are together, like the interaction between the teammates out there. But I think Bill Walton's a good example of like, a, like an internal interaction effect between his offense and his defense. Because, you know, you talk a lot about his offense, his quick-hitting passes, uh, the fact that he can throw some great outlets and things like that. But when you combine that with the fact that he's the primary guy on the team, he's the primary rim protector, a very, like an incredible rim protector. Uh, He's grabbing a ton of rebounds. You know, we can talk about defensive rebounding and offensive rebounding some other time, but he's the one that's finishing a lot of those plays with the defensive rebound. When you combine the fact that he might be blocking shots and getting that rebound and then immediately kicking out, that defense of his actually feeds into right. the ability yep. for him to to get the offense going right away. So I think he himself is like a really interesting like potion of just this beautiful defensive offensive transition. But but only if he has teammates that can get out and run. Hmm. I mean that's the thing. Like if you have slower teammates or more conservative teammates or in a weird way maybe more defensive defensively oriented teammates, then you can't necessarily have that interchange effect that you're talking about where you get a stop, you grab the board and you kick it out and you go. I mean, the Celtics used to talk about this 
with Bill Russell as well, who I think is certainly another player um, whose case rests on just the general high-level idea of how much a player could impact defense back before the three-point line when the game was more clogged and um, you know certainly people weren't able to generate high-efficiency shots with their jumper. And then you juxtapose that, Cody, with a modern player. Like, what do we do with having so much extra data? I think that's an interesting question, right? The data ball era or the tracking era, maybe the data ball era is only the last decade or so because we have these optical cameras in the arena, but the play-by-play era, that's such an important line of demarcation. Because as I said last time, now we're talking about 30 plus years of plus minus data where we have access to this scoreboard data. Um, And another thing that's so fascinating about the scoreboard data is your mind can't process it. So you you look up in the stat sheet after the game, you look up the box score and you can kind of get a sense of like who's scoring a lot and who has decent percentages versus who doesn't has de- have decent percentages. But even that your mind isn't great at, uh, at least for the precision that we want in this sport. You have to actually look up whether a player is shooting 38 or 41 percent from three. That's very hard for people to calculate watching hours and hours of basketball. But the scoreboard, I mean, I think we're, we're mostly lost when it comes to the scoreboard. If you ask someone, how does a team perform late in games, maybe if they know there was like a history of collapse with this team, they watched all year, they could get it. But for the most part, when in the past, we've looked at things like, hey, uh, you're talking to someone and you say, okay, uh, how many free throws did Shaq make in, in at the end of games this year? Were the Lakers or were the Mavs successful in crunch time? I mean, it's only a couple hundred minutes, but most people have no idea. And I think if you just turn that scoreboard off, I talk about this in Thinking Basketball, the book, I'm not sure people would know what's going on. So we have that data for the last 30 seasons. Does it make us, you know, how do we, how do we compare those players to players that come before it's, uh, it's a tricky question, but I will say the more data we get going back in time, once again, the signals look the same. This is what's crazy. You know, we didn't have data in the 90s for a while that was publicly available. Then we got it. Now we have some researchers tracking data in the 80s. Again, the signals look the same. We unearth Harvey Pollock and the Philadelphia 76ers plus minus going back to 1977. And again, the signals pretty much look the same for the best players. So yeah, I don't know. Do, are there more cases to be made for players today or fewer? You're, you're, well, okay. Before we get to that, I want to ask you a question. You posed, I think a fascinating question when talking about, I hope there was something in there. Interesting. There, there was at least like two things I might be able to comment on one of the here. Let me ask you this, Ben. Let me ask you this. When you're trying to consider somebody's goat candidacy, uh, how much are you considering, like you were just talking about Walton, them maximized in a role? Like, how much are you thinking about, okay, this is the ideal situation for them. This is who I'm submitting for my GOAT candidacy. Or are you going to strip it away and be like, nope, we're going to run a bunch of different uh, simulations of a bunch of different situations and see how they do across all of those and triangulate it? I have two takes that are not hot to me, but they may be simmering to some other people. One... I think every great player in NBA history basically played at the right time. Okay. So in other words, we're not like going and looking at great players who are able to dominate in their era 
against their era-specific competition with their era-specific rules, and then it turns out, like, actually, those guys could have been way better. Those, those weren't even the guys who were optimized. No, I think that, especially when I go back and go under the hood, I'm doing Offensive Legends right now, uh, did Greatest Peaks a couple years ago. I think the skill sets and the approach that these players have in their era is generally optimized. I'm saying generally because I think there are some exceptions that if you shift people a decade or so, you know, a three-point shot or spacing or something would change things. But they're great players then. They'd probably be great players in another era. I think they're generally uh, optimized. That relates to number two, which is I think most players that are high-level players and certainly probably the players we think of as great players were in situations that were also optimized for them. Their, their team and their organization and everything was essentially built around them. And this is a really hard thing to know how to like juggle when you compare players at this level or when you assess players across situations because, let me go back to Nash. Um, he's from Santa Clara. Actually, he's from Canada and then goes to Santa Clara, and then he's a four-year college player, and then he gets drafted because the Suns are like so convinced that he's very skilled that they draft him even though they have Kevin Johnson and Jason Kidd, two Hall of Fame point guards on their team ahead of him, and then he's not healthy. And so then when he finally gets healthy, he really sort of has his quote-unquote breakout in Dallas at, at the beginning of the 21st century when he's like 27 years old or something like that. And then he's in a system with a mad scientist, Don Nelson, and Dirk Nowitzki's there. And Dirk Nowitzki's really their poster boy that they drafted earlier. You know, in, in Dallas, they, they acquired Nash. Um, they did not draft him. They acquired him. So all that is to say that he could be an example. Like there might be players hiding but I don't think the great players are players that didn't have something built around them. If you go through the list of all the great players, the coaches and the teammates and even the, or I should say the front office and even their teammates, like they know the drill. They know this guy's strengths and they know how to optimize them. Doesn't mean every coach or every situation did that. But I think in general, the great players are working on those terms. And it's the rare ones like, like a Nash uh, before he got to Phoenix that wasn't really unlocked or used in a certain way. And there might other, you know, there might be other players hiding, but to your question, I certainly am not trying to do that. I'm not looking at a player and saying like, Oh boy, if, uh, if they had just let Shane Battier handle the ball and shoot 17 threes a game, we should be talking about him today. So let's, let's talk about Steve Nash, man. I don't want to spend too much on the Steve Nash feet because I think you have a lot of things to say about Steve Nash in the future, but Again, we look at that Maverick situation like you were just talking about. And this is a guy that when you think about Steve Nash, you obviously have like quarterback Steve Nash in your head. The guy that you throw the ball, he's going to handle the offense. He's going to figure something out for you all and just essentially have a great team without any help. But if you look between 2002 and 2004 with the Mavericks, when he's on the court without Dirk Nowitzki out there, their net rating is almost negative six. It's about negative five and a half right? That's not the kind of signal you would expect from somebody like this that you want to talk about as one of the greatest offensive players ever that you could just throw out there and make things work. So I think that is a, there's an indication that Nash got healthier. 
He maybe got better from his Dallas Mavericks to his Phoenix Suns days. But then finally, he ends up in a situation where his skill set, like you said, is completely unlocked instead of playing in this other situation where this other guy might be the one that they're trying to balance. And it's like, nope, we have something special with Steve Nash. And I think that's the key, Ben, is all of these, all of these GOAT candidates, all of these best players of all time, have that thing that allow them to unlock something, right? Your Shane Battier situation. Shane Battier is great. We love Shane Battier. He's an analytics darling. He loves analytics. I love him for that. But, like, you're not going to give him the ball and be like, Helio time, Shane Battier, to the rest. Like, it just doesn't work that way. But if a coach sees something in you, that means it's there in the first place. And somebody like Nash has it, and he was finally able to let that loose when he made it to Phoenix. Yeah. Um, I want to make a case for a modern player. Can I do that? Yeah, I'm interested to see who it is. Okay, I think we need... Probably more of a sample, but I mean, have you seen Nikola Jokic play in the last three seasons? <laughs> so glad this is happening. I'm so glad I'm here for this. Um, I, I mean, again, I think you you go back to the triangulation process that we've talked about in these last two episodes. If you look at his plus minus data, the scoreboard type of of signals, he is looking like he is having what I will call sort of like, quote unquote, maximal impact. Um, It's heavy quotes because I really don't think there is a ceiling. I just think we're talking about professional athletes and it's a mature product, even as it's evolved rapidly, it's strategically in the last decade or so. And these are just the best guys in the world at it. And it's really hard in this team sport to, you know, have a to stick with with something like on off more than like a 15 point shift in a long-term period per 100 possessions, or if you think about wins to be like worth more than like 25 or 30 wins or something like that. But he basically is starting to look like that. There's been some lag in the playoff signal, which is what I want to wait for to get more stuff from. Um, But if you look at, for instance, the best sort of long-term, let's say four-year changes in in offensive rating let's just stick with offense to simplify the point about Jokic although he has the whole package if you look at the best four-year changes in offensive rating Cody since 2001 when we have easy access to these numbers Steph Curry's number one is about plus 15 we've talked about this plus 14 plus 15 numbers Steph Curry's number one plus 15 uh this is just offense just offense just offense okay yeah okay and and Steve Nash is number two plus 14 um Jokic, since 2021, is plus 15. He's in a position to move into number one if he has a similar year in 2024. And I don't think it's crazy to think about him as the greatest offensive player of all time. And as long as you're like decent on defense, I mean, it goes back to your question at the top. How do we know how much of a sort of outlying impact on the overall game extreme offense can have because it also shifts the lineups. I think that's another thing that we forget in that conversation. Sometimes it's like Curry and the Warriors have been able to play more defensive players around him because they're not starving for offense. Like they're the 2001 Philadelphia 76ers or something. Jokic's teams are the same. I think it's a little trickier with a big because for me, I want to optimize that center position with high level defense. But man, you do get a bit of a trade-off, Cody, when you say, well, our center is the best offensive player. 
So now it's easier, you know, four guys who aren't a center, you don't have to worry about a non-shooting center. You can put four cutters around them, four shooters around them. It just gives you that flexibility to say, how can I put defensive wings and defensive guards on the court? I can go out and trade for Aaron Gordon. I can go out and get Contavious Caldwell-Pope, the greatest player of all time. Like, I can do stuff. Like, are you going to make a KCP argument today? I think I think in the last three years he leads the league in most assisted field goals. So I think he's perfect next to somebody like you. Yeah, or Danny Green. I guess you could make a Danny Green argument. Um, but I, I think the signals are there for him. And then when we talk about triangulating, we talk about stuff like what else can you measure? What can you come up with the box score? How can you look at these interaction effects? Uh, the guy is in the running for the greatest passer ever. His shooting just from the mid-range, from the three-point line, short mid-range, it's like he plays on a Nerf hoop. I've never seen anybody from the short mid-range like him, so he's a walking mismatch. He's a computer that knows how to take advantage of every mismatch, every corner of the court, swinging passes without looking, and uh, shooters and cutters, and on and on and on and on. So um, I think the question is the defense and how much that holds him back, and I'm not really, I mean, I'm interested in your thoughts. I don't have a definitive opinion about this, but I, I think he's the type of player where if we're talking about a group that's kind of on the fringes of this candidacy, or if you buy into the premise of this entire episode or the last two episodes, as long as you don't have someone like Michael Jordan as just an untouchable outlier, then this is the type of player who I think his high-end range gets you in this conversation Cody interestingly Ben you said something brilliant last time about I mean you said multiple it was the one it was things. the one time in the two hours that I said you know you see every a broken clock my friend a broken <laughs> clock go ahead well this this uh our hand pointed in the right direction and it inspired me Ben because Jokic has a case that's really interestingly connected to another player we talked about and that's Kevin Garnett you might feel like, wait a second, hold up, <laughs> hold up. Kevin Garnett, Nicole. They seem like opposites, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But they're not in one specific way. And that's how much of a value add uh, are you when you're a big man that's able to space the floor mm, the way that mm. you do. You talked yeah. about that last time in the way that Kevin Garnett liked to do a lot of handoff actions, created a lot of space. What happens if you com- like completely maximize the spacing? Like you have the ideal spacing center, the passing, the shooting, maybe the best, best, best mid-range shooter of all time, right? What if you have all of that at the center position? And then we think about, like I said earlier, what's the high end for an offensive scoreboard changer? And then is it possible... Then if you're at the center position, then it's actually higher because that position relatively to everything else, relative to like a point guard, isn't going to be as high, right? So there could be a case that somebody like Jokic pushes the boundary of what we expect an offensive player can do to impact the game. And maybe, just maybe, that outweighs any defensive woes that we have. Like maybe you could make the case that, uh, you know, there's a lot of data that shows he limits uh, opponent offensive rebounding when he's on the court. He can create turnovers really well. He's got strong hands. He's got some good positional awareness, but, you know, the fatal flaw for him is he can get cooked out in space by by quicker point guards, you know? They want to try and keep him away from defending in those positions, but the point still stands that maybe, Ben, and do you find this convincing, that a center that's pushing the boundary on offense actually goes higher than any other position at that level of offense? Well, maybe. It's, I think it goes back to being able to put more offense on the court in maybe a more um, 
structured way. I'm trying to think of the right word because usually we think about the defensive trade-off, but here it's not a defensive trade-off. It's having a guy who can also rebound, also be a pick and roll, pick and pop partner, also play delay or space the floor from the top and initiate into an open paint that way. Also be a post-up mismatch option. You don't give up any of those things on offense and then you can fill up the court with more skilled players and it seems that the interaction between shooting and cutting and spacing and just having more skill is the thing that gets your offense going 115 per 100, 120 per 100, 125 points per 100. Do, do I see 130? Do I see 130 points per 100? I mean, obviously the rules uh, influence that and the way the game is called. But Man, the other thing you're making me think of here, Cody, is the difference between playoffs and regular season. And the fact that I would say we see some pretty consistent evidence throughout NBA history that you can get a little bit better in the playoffs or a little bit worse. And then the question becomes, what do we mean by a little bit? If you're going, these these impact signals put us in the 15 to 20 win range on average, or the best players we see like Walton are like 25 to 30 wins. Um, and again, as I said last time, that's not just the games you miss from injury or trade. That's also plus minus data that we can use and look at your on off. That's year to year changes. Just, just in general, I have a whole chapter on this in thinking basketball. If we say that's the regular season signal, Well, the samples are way smaller in the playoffs. There's a little bit more uncertainty and noise. There's more interaction effect with your opponents because you don't get to play 30 teams. You're not all playing the same kind of schedule roughly. Instead, you're playing specialized, high-level teams that you need to find a way to beat. And you can have these big interaction effects like David Robinson looks incredible. Absolutely incredible regular season. And then you got to go play Carl Malone. And Carl Malone is just a bull in a china shop and his hands give him problems and his feet give him problems. And I think in a weird way, if you had to engineer a player to give David Robinson problems, it would be a dude who's super, super strong, super quick, and also has good hands because he likes to face up a lot, which is a little atypical for a seven foot center like David Robinson. So the big question here, Cody, is what do we mean by a little bit of change relative to what we're talking about. Can you go from a 15 or 20 win impact player to a 40 win impact player in the playoffs? Like your your regular season team signal, I think is a pretty good indicator of how strong the team actually is. Do you win 60 games versus 50? Is your point differential plus 10 versus plus five? Both your point differential and your win-loss record have shown to be predictors of playoff performance and in my mind, team strength. So I think they both play into that. And then there's the little concepts of how resilient you are as a team, how resilient your offense is, how resilient your defense is. Is it matchup dependent or are you vulnerable to certain things? You mentioned Jokic. Are you vulnerable to bigs cooking you out in the perimeter? Or do you just have the most switchable, versatile, malleable offense and defense in the history of the NBA? I think all those things change how good you are as a team from the regular season to the postseason. But when we take that same inventory for an individual player, how big is that change? I, I think it's somewhat considerable, but it's not. It's I What did I say? A little bit? What was the original verbiage I used? I think you said a little bit. A little yeah. bit. Yeah, I, I think that's the right language. It's not enormous. In other words, most, especially the great players we're talking about, you don't go from like 
worth 20 wins to worth 10 wins or something. If you do, maybe you're just not that great of a player. We're not talking about you. But on the flip side, I can't think of anybody that has a playoff signal that all of a sudden you go from 20 wins to 35 wins or something like that. The the difference in the playoffs between your team missing the lottery and being a 70-win team. So off the top of your head, based on everything you said, who are some guys that you think seem to raise their impact the most from the regular season to the postseason? Boy, the most? Um, yeah. I'm not of, sure. the, of the superstar level players. Like, I don't want to hear about like Robert Ori or something. Yeah, 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 like yeah. That. yeah. I'm talking no, about I'm, guys I'm, that are I'm kind of I'm kind of glancing through. Um, well, I think the concept. Let me stick with the concept of resiliency for a second, okay. because I think if I if I look at a player like Hakeem, mm-hmm. I think Hakeem, he he's someone who um, I've used the term inelastic. I think his tough shot making keeps his scoring in a certain place. And then just his general rim protection and defensive presence for his era is also something that's probably not matchup dependent. But I'm wondering if there's a way, like the Seattle Sonics played this trapping defense. They had this trapping concept and it's been said to give Olajuwon problems. I don't remember in in doing studies of opponents and playoff performance and things like that. I don't remember thinking it degraded him too much. So maybe that's just reputation overstating the fact. But I think a player like that has a skill set that is going to make you better in the postseason, at least in that era. But I also think that's a different, a slightly different thing than another type of excellence or success that you can have in the postseason, which is goes back to like Magic Johnson, um, Steve Steve Nash again is another example. Those guys, Jokic might be another example here. Those guys have a game that is so holistic, and I would say just so great at succeeding in basketball and making your offense more efficient that it's very difficult to throw things at them because you start throwing things at them and they have counters and those counters aren't just scoring counters. And that's what I'm going with. This is where being able to move off ball or play inside outside or have a, you know, a post game and a face up game, play pick and roll, play half court, play transition, and especially pass. Because when you get in the playoffs and defenses, if they overload on you because you're in a series and you're game planning from series to series, and it's like, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, not going to fool me. And so, and so, right? And so you say, all right, we are going to play Nash to score. That's what Don Nelson said in 2005. He's, he's my guy. I just coached him for all these years. What we're going to do is he wants to get in the lane. He wants to kind of trick you. He wants you to collapse off shooters naturally. And then he's going to spray it around and they're going to get great shots or they're going to get layups or easy looks that way. So what we're going to do is we are not going to bring extra defenders in that situation. And you know what he did in the last three games of that series, Cody, when Dallas did that? I'm guessing he scored some buckets back. He scored 40 points a game. That's the, that's the answer. That's what, that's what you want to do. You want to score 40 points per game when they do that. And actually what you're seeing with great players from LeBron James to Michael Jordan, all the way down to Julius Randle, who, who doesn't have an answer and doesn't have uh, the skills for it, is you get in the playoffs, you're already seeing their numbers 
at some equilibrium of defenses going, we have to W sometimes, we have to not W, we have to worry about a mismatch. That's already what's happening because those are the great players and everyone knows it. And I think in the playoffs, having these superpowers, what did I say? Jokic, Magic Johnson, I would say Michael Jordan largely fits this bill. I think Hakeem and I would say Shaq also at his heyday presented some particular challenges in the postseason in the early 2000s. This, those are kind of the guys that jumped to top of mind for me. Do you have, do you have any others? Did, did you say LeBron in there just to cover people's anger? Did you say LeBron in there? I think I started say LeBron. I think I started with LeBron. Okay. Um, although I don't know if he has the same, certainly later in his career, because his regular seasons drop. But I think that the thing you want to be careful of is like LeBron has some crazy regular seasons in Cleveland. And if you were to think I'm saying in his 09 and 10 regular seasons in Cleveland, he then gets much better and more resilient in the playoffs. I don't think that's what happened at all. So I do think he has that exact build that I just described. Certainly um, sort of the, the last decade of his career, the prime of his career. But he's a weird one because at a certain point, he just the, the regular seasons no longer become um, a showcase for his dominance. I was going to say, LeBron, I think, is the case again for like, it's tough to just look at the impact of regular season and postseason and like, oh, look at how much better he is. Because like playoff LeBron's a thing. Because regular season LeBron just took the foot off the gas. Like when you're this that good, you're able to just kind of coast along and then bring it up to what you actually were. So um, you want to talk about Shaq for a second, Ben? He was very good. Why? What's your he what's was, your question? So Shaq was excellent at the game of basketball. Like you go and I think the the Pacers series was is that two thousand two thousand yeah two thousand yeah two thousand. Well, he's about forty twenty in that series. Yeah, it was a lot. It, it's unbelievable. That final series is like one of the most, dom- maybe the most dominant I've ever seen, like an individual player throughout. Um, the one signal that makes me nervous when I see things with Shaq is uh, the defensive numbers, Ben. Like this is a guy that's uh, enormous, obviously. He's a big rim protector. I think he's famous for saying nobody's ever dunked over him, which as far as I'm concerned, it might actually be true. I don't know if I've ever seen Shaq be posterized. I've seen clips where people dunk near him, and he's like, no, I'm not going to do a Shaq impression. I'm not going to do that right now in this broadcast, Ben. Uh, but he's like, that's not on me. Like I've never been posterized, which, you know, sure, good for him. But when you look at pretty much any on-off number across regular season playoffs, across that like prime period with the Lakers – their defense is never that much better, either when he's on the court versus off the court, when he's in playing in the game versus not in the game, the so-called Wowie data we've talked about. Um, his rim protection numbers are really good. Like He limits the amount of times that, that teams shoot at the rim. He's good at protecting the rim that way. But if you take him into space, I think he's quite weak. Like The way that we talk about Jokic in space, like I think he was at least even better than, than peak Shaq, like Lakers Shaq in space, because he did not like to go out at all that those situations. So I don't know, Ben. I just don't know what to really think about Shaq's defense in this kind of conversation when we're talking about full impact, just because between all of that and the fact that the Lakers also had really good defenses, like I think in 2001, their postseason postseason relative defensive ratings in the 95th percentile in 2002 is the 80th percentile. So I don't know, maybe I'm making much ado about nothing, but uh, I think Shaq's defense could be more of a conversation here. I don't think it's much ado about nothing. I think that's the, that's the question for sort of pulling you in the low direction on his range. Um, 
By the way, we, we asked for some comments about part one to kind of stimulate more things to talk about here in part two. And someone was saying like, I was having, I was having a, a crisis or something about sort of, um, you know, philosophizing all of a sudden that there are other great players who are GOAT candidates or things like that. Most of what we're going to talk about here are the ranges that I've been talking about in projects, in videos, in historical series for at least seven years. If you actually look at most of the ranges, this is where the uncertainty falls. And this is sort of what I've been saying. And this is the impetus, in a sense, for these discussions. If you're Shaquille O'Neal and you think that in the early 2000s, uh, well, you're not Shaquille O'Neal and I'm not Shaquille O'Neal. So let's, let's talk about Shaquille O'Neal. In the early 2000s, his size and defensive rebounding and rim protect rim protection and shot blocking and even his uh, intimidation factor as a huge dude who could, you know, he could put you on your butt. You know, Allen Iverson comes in and he wants to throw him on his backside a little bit. Nothing too dirty. Just a reminder that he, you know, he's got all that weight for a reason. He's got to use it. He's got to throw it around. If you believe that that defensive impact is going to consistently make a team better even by just a little bit, and he's not bleeding value at the center position. And then the offense could be historically great offense because of his gravity off ball, um, his offensive rebounding, his lob, his lob threat, his post game, the fact that he fouls out your entire front line. Um, they're fouling him and sending him to the line so he can have less efficient offense. This is one of the only players in league history that you can say this about. They're like, please foul Shaq. So he only shoots 53% on this half court possession that is worth like a 45% shot for most teams. That's what we're hoping for. If you believe all that, then I think his high end gives him a goat candidacy for this conversation. To your point, Cody, if you're not completely sold about some of the things offensively with the, with the value of that interior gravity, he's like an inverse Curry for younger fans um, who don't didn't get to see how ridiculous it got with him at a certain point. He's also dependent on getting the ball, and that means he's not going to have the same on-ball playmaking capacity that some of these other players have that we're talking about on offense. And then you go, oh, I watched the Sacramento Kings series the other day, 2002. At the time, it was Mike Bibby's series. And Mike Bibby was a decently big name in basketball. First of all, his, his dad was a professional basketball player for Philadelphia and other teams, uh, Henry Bibby, and he was a coach. And then Mike wins national champion, the national championship at Arizona in 97. He is a high draft pick. And all of a sudden... You know, he's he's with the King, he was with the Vancouver Grizzlies, and it's like, ah, eh, whatever. And then he goes to the Kings and he has his breakout series in 2002. And everyone's like, Mike Bibby has arrived. And you you rewatch that series, and and what you see is Mike Bibby gets to play Shaquille O'Neal in pick and roll. That is that is what's happened. Shaquille O'Neal is not coming out on Mike Bibby in pick and roll. So my mind immediately goes to how many teams in the league are going to be able to exploit this? How many guards in the league are going to be able to attack it? How efficient is it? How much does it actually matter? And I think this lands us, Cody, on a, on a huge, huge concept. When we are watching basketball and trying to figure out, like, who's good, who's the best, who's the best ever, um, we often say, like, eye test versus data. 
eye test to me is is not very helpful at all. In fact, eye test for a lot of people can be confusing. Eye test to me is the starter kit that casts a net that allows you to go do the thing we really want to talk about, which is film study. It's not eye test, it's film study. We need to go in there and pause and rewind and put take notes and figure out what people are doing and make a call to an assistant coach and say, what the heck are you guys running here? That's film study. That's not eye test. And that means as we do this, and as we see tendencies and we see things, we might have, we might have data for something. We might have data for mid-range jumpers or assisted jumpers or whatever. But when we watch it and we go, okay, what I just saw, uh, Mike Bibby, mid-range jumper against Shaquille O'Neal. Now I have to figure out, how, one, how many times does that happen? How frequently is the thing happening that I care about? How many times does someone make a great layup pass or a screen or save a loose ball or whatever these things that I think have, have value? One, how often do they do it? And Cody, this is the big one. Two, how valuable is it? How valuable is it? This is the thing we have been flying blind on. And this is the thing what I've spent a lot of my time uh, in terms of collecting historical data, trying to figure out. Like, it's great to say someone's... Avery Bradley's an awesome man defender. He can slow down a penetrator 12% of the time or something. Okay, how valuable is that? What is the difference between having half a step extra? What does it mean when Steve Nash gets to touch the paint? with his little probing dribbles and things like that. What's, Shaq gra- what's Shaq's gravity worth? How do we even f- go about figuring that out? So to answer your question, I think you can make a case that that is a defensive vulnerability along with some of his other uh, stationariness, his, la- his lack of mobility or desire on the defensive end that kind of drags him down to... A, a neutralish, averageish, at best defender, and then and then to be a goat, you kind of might have to outpace the other offensive goats that we talked about, um, and maybe that gets trickier. And, and all of a sudden, his low end isn't in the conversation. Two things, two things on that, Ben. Number one, uh, I think that Shaq conversation really illustrates well the idea of these ranges because we could have this conversation with two different people someone could lay out like i go with somebody else and talk with them and they're like here's my case for shacks the goat they talk about all the gra- the inverse gravity stuff that you're talking about the offensive rebounding following out everyone uh just how physically dominant he is his his intimidation in the paint makes him a good enough defensive player and i'd be like all right great that's a good case i appreciate the fact that you just said he's the goat someone else comes in Brings up this pick and roll, def- pick and roll defensive woes, uh, issues with his mobility, things like that, and they're like, you know what, this defense brings him down a little bit, not the goat. And I'd be like, yep, great argument. And I think like those two things can both exist within the same band, and I think that's what makes people really angry when you talk about the ranges. Is like both of those arguments and opinions can exist in the same space, right? It's tough to finally triangulate it to like a singular number, and like those are the ranges we talk about. Uh, something else I want to talk about again triangulation is the word of the day ben like we need like the sesame street like like triangulation kids uh the other one is when you talk about how valuable is something here's the next part of that equation that makes it just mind-boggling as a project ben you can't just do a film study of Shaq and figure it out you then have to do a film study of 2001 matumbo you need to do a film study of 
uh, Kevin Garnett, of Tim Duncan, of all of these other guys that are playing at the same time as him, and be like, all right, here's what all of them look like in these situations. Here's what all of them look like. Here's what all of Shaq looks like in these situations. And then once you have all that data, you can contextualize and put it together. You can't just look at someone in isolation and be like, this is how valuable it is. No, you have to like have this giant collection, like a bunch of butterflies and nets. And then you take all of that data and be like, now I can do something with it. No, this is why we just use rings. <laughs> I mean, you you joke, no. but also it's just it's easier. It's the it's the entry point into the conversation. It's the easy way to just be like definitive answer right there. I, I this is what I was saying at the beginning of the last episode. I understand people who don't mm-hmm. want to really think about the fact that this sausage is being made in a dark secret room and no one knows what the heck goes in it and and they can't figure out any of the ingredients. But they're because they're, they're just going to tell you like I ate this sausage one time and it was the best sausage uh, of all time. Um, the uh, yes yes by the way Shaq before we forget about Shaq um I think I mentioned this last time we have the playoff plus minus data going back to 1997 we have very small off-court samples because Shaq played like 42 minutes a game but also Shaq played 42 minutes a game so his impact was crazy and if you look at any multi-year stretch in playoff data as long as you have that filter small enough in the off minutes uh, because he didn't rest that much. Um, Shaq does have the biggest on-off change on record in the last 25 years. He's plus 22 per 48 minutes in the playoffs. And again, the, the, the plus 22 part, it's like if the team got to play more without him, would they really be that bad? I probably don't think so. You can contextualize that. But it is a, a point in his favor that maybe in the playoffs, he was just a completely unstoppable thing per his reputation at the time. Of course, the other thing you said, how, how do you go about tracking the whole league and things like that? That's where stats help. That's where the box score helps. That's where tracking data helps. That's where, frankly... Uh, plus minus to me is so valuable because it helps to not figure out like a single individual player who I can rank perfectly in my, in my little sheets, Cody at night before I go to bed. It's, it's like, actually all of a sudden you start to see, boy, these like shot blocking centers, they're really good. Maybe they're the best in a bench role or something, but, um, they're very valuable. I didn't think they would be that valuable. Movement shooters who don't score as much, I didn't think they would be that valuable. And of course, a big one that we've harped on uh, before is playmaking and just how insanely valuable playmaking is. And maybe at the crux of it, because it's a team game and because you're one of five players on the court, maybe harnessing and unlocking all four of your teammates at the same time is more valuable than almost any realistic scoring we could expect outside of just like totally freakish, you know, you're, you're nine feet tall um, and, and you can score at will. We haven't seen that yet, so I think the playmaking thing is, is huge. Yeah. I'm going to get meta for a second, Ben. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you with a question from the Discord. I don't remember who it was because it's just, it's just coming back to me right now. And I don't want to actually answer the question. I, I want to ask you a question about the question. The question was basically like, would you be inter- like if there was a, a machine that somehow is able to objectively give you an answer for how good each player was like it actually gives you the impact that they have um would you want to listen to it would you basically get that information and then just like use that as a starting point or whatever else my question to you ben is do you think such a machine is actually even possible 
Like, I know it's a thought experiment, but do you think it's even possible to at any point ever in all of this this uh, adventure towards trying to figure out how valuable each player is that we will ever be able to have a machine that figures out exactly what a player's impact is on the court? Well, I think you can do it. Sure. Yeah, right. I think it's I think theoretically you can do it. Um, the tricky part is what is the it? Is it the average of your performance across 10,000 different permutations of teammates? Is it your situational value down to a T? We know exactly how much you're worth worth for that team. To your point, does it change when one of your teammates gets injured or one of your teammates gets older and doesn't have the same synergy with you, that chemistry that you had that made you valuable? You know, the players kind of can go together a little bit as what we were talking about earlier. So I definitely think things like that are theoretically possible. I'm not sure we'll ever get to them in our lifetime because I think they're extremely difficult. And I think what we're trying to do is hone the uncertainty, right? But there still is that uncertainty. Who who else, Cody? Do you have any other players we haven't talked about as we try to sort of finalize a list and make some cases here and, and put this to bed? So hmm. we've... We've you've re- referenced Bill Russell a couple of times, and I don't know if we we may have talked about him in passing. But what about someone like Wilt Chamberlain? Yeah, I think Wilt, boy, Wilt cuts both directions a lot, right? Because Wilt does not have the impact you want. The times we get the signals from when he's traded, basically, um, that that cuts in many directions. So if you look at even arriving in 1960 as rookie of the year, I would say that one looks pretty good for him, but it's not astounding in, in his first season in 1960. Then in 1965, when he's traded midseason, Philadelphia, the 76ers, the team he goes to, they get about eight wins better in the second half of the year. But again, that's a regular season thing. Are they more than eight wins better because of how potent they are in the postseason. I think so, but it's still not this mega signal that you want. And then the team he left in San Francisco, they were a disaster. They were already at the bottom of the league, which is not good. And unfortunately for him in this case, they did not turn into a two-win team. They, they were still, they were like, what's, what's your win pace with Wilt? I don't know, 25 wins. What is it without? Oh, I don't know, 18 wins. Um, then he leaves Philadelphia for the 1969 season to go to the Lakers, the Lakers arguably look worse than the year before when they were healthy with Jerry West. Again, um, there's the entire concept of like, well, they got to they got to game seven and they almost won a title. Did it make them a better playoff team? Uh, maybe I buy that to some degree as well, although I think it's a little more complicated. That 68 Lakers team was fascinating. And then Philadelphia, the team he leaves, they're really good. They aren't healthy. They lose a key player in Luke Jackson, but I mean, they have like a future ABA MVP and Billy Cunningham. The the team is loaded. So he doesn't have those signals. I think that's the thing that makes you go, "Mm, I I wonder, I wonder. On the flip side, when you watch him play and when you look at the heights and the successes of some of his teams, I mean, he was on two of the greatest teams of all time. And I do think a lot of the playoff resume is really strong. It's so ironic. These players get hit with 
these labels of like they're losers and they can't win the big one and they choke. He actually go through it just because his scoring is declining doesn't mean his defense, his playmaking, his gravity, his rebounding, all the other things aren't making you really hard to eliminate in the postseason. In a series, they aren't making you really hard to game plan, especially if you don't have Bill Russell and the Boston Celtics. So I think he's a player that um, I have a hard time with the really, really, really high end being there. But I do think it cuts a little bit in both directions with him. So, yeah, I, I think he's – I would include him on this list. I would include him on this list. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like what you said about, like, the really, really high end because I do think the thing with the Wilt, we talk about it with Kawhi all the time, is people gift him all these things. Right, like right, yeah. The enormous defense, the scoring, the passing. They but put like, it together in one player. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't all happen at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I have a couple players that, like – I actually think they're less interesting because I think they'll probably be pretty close. And if they're not on the list, whatever. Uh, there's one guy who's like the spreadsheets guy that I want to bring up at some point. But I have another guy ahead of that. Uh, and that's if we count the uh, the ABA, Ben. What do you think about Dr. J? Oh, um, the thing with Dr. J is he, he goes to Philadelphia in 1977. And Cody, we have plus minus data for him from 1977. And you asked this question last time, like, do you think it's possible to be a GOAT level player, to be in this conversation and have a peak that could be the best peak, the best player we ever saw play basketball and have zero or negative plus minus signal on your team? Um, It gets weird because I think in order to do that, you would probably need at least one other player of your caliber that is just creating a a huge redundancy, like two Magic Johnsons or something, and they just go in and out of the game for each other, and they never play together. And you're like, boy, those Magic Johnsons aren't very good, but they play on good teams. (laughs) They play on good teams with James Worthy. Um, Maybe James Worthy is the star of the team, not those Magic Johnsons. So I think like it's one of those things that's theoretically possible, but it's just so unlikely um, that I actually don't think there's a practical circumstance where it's ever really come close to happening, which means I do think you need to have some signal coming from the scoreboard that suggests you're really good for your team just to get in this conversation. Dr. J doesn't really have that in the NBA, but we don't know what his impact signal was in the ABA. We also, um, I mean, the league was split you know, how does like how do you make sense of the fact that the ABA had a three-point line and they generally had a little less size on the front line and they had more spacing? So he's playing in a different league. In his league in the ABA, 1974 championship, I believe, 1976 championship, multi-time MVP as this incredible run in the 1976 season to end the season and win the playoffs. And he's just cooking Bobby Jones, who's, who's a great defender and averaging like 35 or 40 points a game in the ABA finals. Is that enough to get there for me? Um, I will say I see the conceptual argument. I have seen a handful of those games in the last year. And as great as Julius Irving is, I, I think I would lean... No, it's very close. I'm not sure. Again, if you just say the ABA, I don't have to worry about getting him into the NBA and things like that, then I think it becomes a little more plausible. Yeah, but when I when I try to sort out the split leagues, I I get a little stuck. Okay. 
Yeah. I'm, I accept that. I accept that. The thing about Irving, when I when because I think you, you shared some of these games with me. I watched some of those ABA oh, yeah. clips. I don't even yeah. remember. Those are good times. But <laughs> just like his his size, his athleticism, and the fact that they could play a little bit smaller in that league, and he would play at the four. And they had and he was space. Just kind of, yeah, they yeah. had space. He was yeah. kind of a wrecking ball on deep. Like, he wasn't the greatest defensive player, but, like, he could leverage that athleticism and length. And I'm like, man, I don't know. Maybe if we just look at this peak ABA slice of him, maybe you could consider him. So I, I'd be open to that, it sounds like, even more than you would, maybe. Yeah. All right. Who else? I lo- this is my favorite part of this entire okay, series. We got to get brass tacks here. This, I, this might seem like a joke, Ben, but box score metrics. Love this guy. Just love this guy. And plus minus metrics? Plus minus metrics. Love this and he's guy. A, and he's a current player? He's a current player, He's ben. played in the league for a long time? He's never won a championship, Ben. He's I never have, won a championship. I have written down... Cody, we're going to do a mind meld. Oh we, we have not talked about this at all. If you're listening, we've just batted around the idea, and then we started recording. Uh, Cody and I have not shared players at all. I have written right here, underneath this category I called... Other loser candidates. These are players who have not won championships that are that are stuck with the scarlet letter of losing. The the first player on this list, Cody. I'm just going to go for it. Is yep. Chris Paul? Absolutely, absolutely. It's Chris Paul, Ben. What do you think about him? I am fascinated. I am so fascinated. I want to uh, and will at some point, probably not until next summer at the earliest, do a very deep dive mm. on his career. The more I learn about the game, the more data I get, the more I'm able to access older film and things like this, the more excited I become about like going back and revisiting players. And sometimes I revisit players and it cuts a little in the opposite direction. I'm like, oh, I didn't realize this was happening. Oh, I have more data, and this original data signal didn't hold up. I'll give you a great example. Tim Duncan, every time I go back and do this, I do this sort of like, well, we're going to watch Shaq. We're going to watch Akeem. We're going to watch Garnett. We're going to watch Tim Duncan. And I am the least impressed by Tim Duncan every single time I do this. Every single time I do this. But I also spent 20 years now at this point going to bat for Tim Duncan and all the other things that he does, and especially his defensive presence and his rim protection and just all the things that make him a great player. But one thing that has always been in conflict with some of what I saw was Cody, early 2000s, playoff runs, culminating with the 2003 championship. The Spurs are like, 26 points better per 100 or something historically insane in those three seasons, in those three postseasons, when Duncan is in the game versus when Duncan is out of the game. And that's always thrown me a little bit. And now, as time goes on, we get more data and we get more information. And I don't think that actually holds up to scrutiny. There's a couple reasons, but the short of it is that if you, we talked about this earlier this year, if you think about things like shooting luck, and you actually start to look at these little stints when he's on the court versus off the court. To me, it's no longer about Tim Duncan when he's in the game and his opponents are shooting like 
26% in the playoffs from three or whatever it comes out to. I can't remember off the top of my head. And in the regular season, it's 34%. It's not to say that he doesn't have an impact on that. It's just like, that's ridiculous. Your opponent is not just going to suddenly shoot 26% from three. And they never do it again. They didn't do it before. And they didn't do it after. And it's the same thing with his team when he's on the court. They also have a shooting luck signal. So if you try to account for those things, all of a sudden it looks like every other Tim Duncan playoff run, which is still very good, but it doesn't cut in that same direction of what I saw. So how did we get on this point? Who are we talking about? Chris Paul. We're talking about Chris Paul. Chris Paul. No, 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 Chris Paul. Because all that is to say, um, I am very excited to finally get to go back for the first time in a long time and get way more acts. I have, I have so much more film on Chris Paul and we have more data on Chris Paul and just figure out what the heck's going on because I think to the point of this entire series, as a basketball community, we literally punt him into the sun because he hasn't won a championship. He is punted into the sun. If he played on a team where he was the best player on a championship team, and I hope we agree that is the easiest thing in the world to construct... I mean, New Orleans in his like third year was like a player away, maybe, or maybe another season away or keeping Tyson Chandler or something like that from being a team that could win a championship where he is clearly far and away the best player on the team and a clear cut MVP candidate. And I think if he stayed healthy and played at that level and had had seasons like that, he probably would have won an MVP, especially since he lost the 2008 MVP, maybe in the final game of the season. Uh, for people who don't remember that or don't know that, 15 years ago, the Western Conference wa- race was wide open after a bunch of furious trades, uh, mostly, I think, as a response to the Celtics in the East with Kevin Garnett and, and what he did there. The Lakers get Pau Gasol. They rise up to the top of the standings. And I, I can't remember. I think it might have been the last game of the year. New Orleans and the Lakers played for the top seed. And there was just a ton of media people like, well, whoever gets the top seed, that's who I'm going to vote for between Chris Paul and Kobe Bryant. You have a champion. You have a, you have a couple championships, Kobe. You have an M, uh, Cody. Uh, I almost made it through two episodes <laughs> of talking about great players. <sighs> you have a couple, couple championships and uh, maybe, maybe four championships. I mean, just put the right team together. You didn't you, MVP or two. I think people are like, basically talking about Chris Paul the way they're talking about Steph Curry. I think that's I think that's the shift in psychological effect of never win. I mean, he was he was labeled as someone who couldn't even get out of the second round of the playoffs. Remember that? Before yeah. he went to Phoenix? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, um I really don't know what to do with him. I I am not comfortable putting his high-end peak in my goat possible category but he is he's the first guy listed here you say this the Stephen Curry comparison but Chris Paul is also just like an immense dominator of the ball and I think one of the things that really illustrates this I bring up the like LeBron James stat from earlier with him with separate teammates like between 2018 and 2019 just in the regular season this isn't playoffs there's not a lot of playoff data but when you look at James Harden you look at Chris Paul uh the Rockets were actually better when Chris Paul was on the court with that, sorry, let me try that again. They were better when Chris say. Paul yeah. was on the court without James Harden than when they were both on the court and when James Harden was on the court without Chris Paul. Yep. Right? So this is a guy that, like, you look throughout his career. He's a f- dominator of the ball. It's not clear how great he would be next to other high-end creators at his peak. But on the other side, Ben, like, 
unbelievable at getting to his spot mid-range when he's younger. Obviously, the explosiveness. The defense, I think, is really fascinating. We talked about him really briefly in those defense episodes where we both maybe chucked him off to the side right away because he doesn't quite compete with the best guard defenders of the last 15 years. But the defensive signals are incredible, Ben. He's one of the best steals artists. Some people think he is. Absolutely. Some people think we underrated him and that they definitely have him in their top three or top five. And then if you you grant him that much defense along with his immense abilities on offense, which, again, the stats seem to bear it out. They seem to point to a titanic guy. I don't know. Maybe the stats are pointing to something that we're just like a little off on and we could bump him up just a little bit more into this conversation. Hey, so I think in the interest of time, what we're actually going to have to do is come back for a part three. We'll pause here And then we'll finish the discussions on some of these players that we want to go into greater detail on in the final act of this series. In the meantime, if you want to support us, patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. That's the best way to do that. Sorry to sort of abruptly stop the conversation here, but it's a natural breaking point before we uh, get into those deeper conversations about some of the remaining players that we want to discuss. So... Otherwise, thanks as always for listening to this one. Hope you're enjoying it. And as always, I do hope you're having a great day. 